1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to speak to Dr. Andrew Fitzmorris today about his book titled King Leopold's Ghostwriter, published by Princeton University Press in 2021, which is a fascinating story. On the one hand, it's a biography, but there's also a love story, and it also tells us a whole bunch of things about international law, international diplomacy. Um and explains kind of a lot about a rather odd thing in world history, which is essentially how the Congo Free State was able to exist. And for anyone familiar with the Congo Free State, um, it's an odd thing. It's kind of a colony. It's kind of a company. It's kind of a state. Um, it's a bit confusing. And this book... Among many other things, helps us understand how this came to be in an era where a whole lot of international law that we've inherited today um, was very much kind of being developed and in flux. Um, so, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to take us through the many layers and lenses of your book.
0: Well, thank you very much for, um, for having me. Um, it's it's going to be great fun to, to talk about my own work. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: could you start us off, in fact, by telling us a bit about yourself and explaining why you came to write this book?
0: Uh, yes. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'm originally from, as you can, as your listeners can probably hear, and you can probably hear, I'm originally from uh, Australia. I uh, studied in England in the 1990s. I studied in, um, uh, I studied the history of political thought at Cambridge. Did my PhD there. I went back to Australia for for many years, but I more recently moved back to London. I'm now at Queen Mary University of London, where there's a very large concentration of historians of political thought so it's a kind of a natural a natural home London generally has generally has um, many people uh, with with similar interests so it's it's nice to be to be here um, i uh, I have always worked on a, a, a questions of uh, uh, questions around the intellectual history of empire I suppose would be the best way of putting it, and uh, and I've wrote a couple of other books with that um, with that interest. One concerning the intellectual history of um, the colonization of America, another one about the, the history of property arguments, in particular as they related to uh, empire. So I was very much a kind of a very much a pure intellectual historian, but I I felt um, always a, a certain uh, weakness in my own approach to the subject of understanding the history of ideas insofar as I found it difficult to explain change and uh, and this became particularly a, um, this uh, became a kind of focus for me when while I was writing my last book about um, ideas of property. I stumbled across a figure, a man called Travis Twist, who was a lawyer. Uh, outside of my area, I previously worked mainly on early modern um, 16th, 17th century um, ideas. This man was, was in the 19th century. He was an ecclesiastical lawyer and an international lawyer. And I discovered um, that he'd worked for Leopold in providing a legal uh, justification for the Congo Free State. And that struck me as odd because he had previously written in the... So the, he did this for Leopold in the 1880s, uh, 1870s and eighties. Previously in the 1840s, he'd written... I knew that he'd written about what was called the Oregon Territory at the time, uh, which really meant the west coast uh, of North America. And he, there, there was a dispute that ran from the late 18th century through to the 1840s about who exactly should possess the West Coast of North America, whether it should be um, the new United States of America, uh, which laid a certain kind of claim to it, although hadn't yet done much about that, uh, whether it should be the British extending their claim south from from Canada, or even the Spanish. Um, and. Twist had written about that and said, well, it would be absurd in the case of the United States to argue that uh, private individuals, uh, at this time the wagon the wagon trains that were crossing the Rocky Mountains and getting into California, it would be absurd that these private individuals should be able to make any claim to exercising sovereignty, they're beyond the reach of the United States. Uh, and these the pri- private figures have absolutely no standing in international society or international law. And, and when he said that he was he was arguing what was a fairly standard position in international law in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. That struck me as odd because in the eighteen seventies and eighties he made precisely the opposite argument uh, for Leopold, which was that his company could become a state. I wanted to understand how this man could change his ideas so radically in the course of his lifetime. I mean, there was 40 years in between, and uh, and there are many reasons why he might uh, change his mind over 40 years. But as much as I looked at the usual kind of textual, intellectual reasons, none, none of them seemed to provide a sufficient answer. We could um, an adequate answer. We could argue that he was uh, a lawyer, so he was employed to to um, represent positions that that reflected the interests of his clients. But in both cases, in both the Oregon Territory and when arguing for Leopold, he at least uh, he, he he presented his claims very much as theoretical positions and not as as briefs for clients. Uh I also at the same time discovered that he'd been involved in a scandal, um, insofar as he'd been he'd married um a woman who had been revealed uh not conclusively, I'd say, but it but nevertheless uh, I subsequently discovered that it was conclusive. But um she'd been claimed to have been a prostitute. There'd been a trial around this claim. And he'd have they'd aban- he and his wife had abandoned uh, the trial, and and he'd had to um, resign all of his offices uh, working in the Church of England and working uh, in in um, working for in fact for the um, British government uh, as a as a lawyer for the British government in international law. So he found himself from eighteen seventy two without any jobs. He'd previously had many jobs. He suddenly had no job, and and that certainly gave him a reason to go and work for Leopold. But even that, uh, to me, did not explain the intellectual transformation. And at this point, I started to want to dig deeper into questions of um, why he changed the way he thought about... Uh, what we call legal personality, uh, what constitute, what kind of, uh, what kind of person, what kind of artificial person uh, uh, can inhabit uh, international society, and what kind of, uh, what we might call natural person um, can be a member of um, of society itself, and whether there was a connection between these two two ideas, and then fundamentally um i just was drawn to the story because it seemed fascinating and and there's it seemed to me an, an opportunity to include the the uh, a broader social and cultural context to an intellectual's life in understanding the work of that intellectual i think that had previously been absent uh, in much of my work and I believe actually is very much absent uh, in, in a lot of intellectual history.
1: Well, thank you for explaining that. Um, it's a fascinating puzzle, right? Even, just, even if he hadn't been so influential in a lot of ways, the simple idea of kind of being on the record for one thing and then completely being at the forefront of arguing against that um, is a puzzle in and of itself. And then to uncover all these additional aspects, um, I mean, there's no que- there's no wonder that that results in a very interesting book from that starting point. Um, but before we get into all of those twists and turns, I'd love to pick up on kind of something you just finished with, which is about kind of intellectual history, political thought um, more broadly and how we do that, how we think about that. How can you tell us a bit more about how this book expands on the methodologies of intellectual history? What we consider part of the discipline?
0: Mm, sure. I mean, I, I, in some ways, I'd, li- I'd like to be. Um, I, I, I believe that. W- Uh, The the methodologies of intellectual history have remained fairly consistent since the 1960s when figures such as John Pocock and Quentin Skinner and Peter Laslett uh, really made us understand that all figures in the history of political thought and all figures in intellectual history more broadly need to be understood in their context, that that it was by placing them in context that we could overcome some of the um, distortions that we produce the anachronistic distortions we produce by imposing our the ideas from the present upon the past um, I, I the context I think for it certainly um, for Lazlit I think and for for Skinner that always uh, meant the broadest possible well so, and certainly in the more recent in Quentin Skinner's more recent sort of statements of of methodology. That always meant that we should take in the broadest possible uh, social and cultural context to understand uh, the development of ideas. W- w- I mean, I'd say two things about that. One is, well, I, don't, I don't know whether that's always, well, so I think the theory has always, the methodological theory has always been there, uh, and it's been set down by by those very important figures in the history of political thought. I'm not sure that that has always been the case in practice. I think a lot of uh, intellectual historians continued to look at uh, figures in the past in terms of a fairly limited range of uh, printed texts and not in terms of the broader um, social and cultural context which were available. Partly perhaps they didn't do that because it's not very easy. Uh, I, I think probably another point maybe in this 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 possibly does start to stretch the those methodologies a little bit. Um, another point is what we count as text and what we count as context is different uh, in the way in which I've written this book. Part of my argument would be that the strategies of Travis Tuis' wife and uh, of his Farald uh, van uh, 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 uh and um, and of one of his uh, mistresses, uh, a courtesan, who was involved with uh, Agnes Willoughby, the strategies of the, the kind of social strategies of these women, uh, what they needed to do in order to survive, which involved a lot of work around uh, manipulating their their identities, effectively, uh these I think can be taken not just as context but perhaps even as tests uh, in intellectual history and that may be as I say perhaps pushing the boundaries a little bit of, of what we'd normally include in the methodologies of of this discipline hmm.
1: But pushing boundaries, surely that's what we do as scholars. (laughs) Um, So thank you for sort of helping us think through that a little bit, questioning kind of what we do and don't include um, as a wonderful foundation now for diving into the book itself. Um, So Traverse Twist, uh, for one thing, had a very long career, uh, which is quite interesting, both because obviously there's a lot of him to get into, but also gives us a window into this particular period where a whole lot of things were changing, not just his opinions. So how can we think about his life and career, essentially, in one way, as a lens to understand these wider societal transformations?
0: Yes, thank you. Well... um... I mean I think that that, that you you raise a very important point uh, in the first place which is that he's born in 1809 and he died in 1897 so his life really did span the century he was already working in in Oxford um by the Late eighteen thirties, early eighteen uh, forties, he he'd become a fellow in Oxford. He was initially a, an Oxford don. Uh, he he went from uh, working as an Oxford don. It's clearly a, a restless man. I think uh, he went from working as, a, as an Oxford don to to deciding to pursue. He 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 was a Lecture in actually a, a broad range of of subjects. He he taught not only uh, law but mathematics and history. And, um, uh, um, he was very deeply involved in natural history. Uh, he he had a uh, extra- extraordinary kind of eclectic eclectic tastes, probably even for this period. And by the eighteen forties, he'd decided to pursue a career in the law, in civil law, which he was teaching in Oxford. Oxford was one of the um, places, uh, one of the only places in which the civil law could be studied. Uh, he To work in the civil law, uh, the, the only place where you could practice civil law in the 19th century was in the Doctor's Commons, the Doctors' Commons was was effectively one of the inns of court. It no longer exists. When when um, um, marriage law was changed, uh, with t- taking marriage law away from uh, the ecclesiastical courts, the, the um, Doctors' Commons eventually uh, effectively folded in the second half of the nineteenth century. But it was in, effectively an in, in one of the inns of courts for hundreds of years. Uh, he moved into the Doctors' Commons. Uh, he worked there for a number of years he acquired a number of senior positions within the um, within the Church of England uh, he also um, acquired a senior position with effectively within the Admiralty courts uh, and he um, he uh, and and he, even then, he seemed to me to be not quite settled. He then applied for a professorship at King's College London, which was um, a new uh, university created in London, partly as a response to the creation of um, the Secular University College London. Twiss, uh, as, a, as a defender of the Church of England, took a job at King's College London, uh, one of the first ever professors of international law in the country. Uh, So he was constantly really shifting shifting his positions, or at the same time he held many different um, uh, positions uh, across across his lifetime. His life uh, is a lens onto, onto changes in the 19th century, I think, also, because he clearly, uh, in his early career, was very deeply uh, attached and and I think it's probably fair to say invested, institutionally invested, in protecting the political and legal order established in the Congress uh, of Vienna. So he saw himself as part of an effort in many ways to protect, uh, certainly, Britain uh, and to protect Europe from what was seen as some of the radical uh, fallout from the French Revolution. He was in, uh, Benjamin Disraeli introduced him in 1848 to Prince Metternich, uh, who had been the Chancellor of the Austrian Empire and was fleeing the um, the uh, uh, was fleeing the um, eighteen forty eight revolutions, Metternich um, uh, fled to Brighton of all places and spent a couple of years in Brighton. Uh, Disraeli introduced Twist to to Metternich in order f- for Twist to write. Um polemics attacking the eighteen forty eight revolutions in collaboration with Metternich really was a, 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 an early in, uh, indication of twist's um propensity to, to ghost writing uh but the the two of them formed a very close friendship Metternich and twist Twist when Metternich moved back to germany uh when when the the dust had settled from the eighteen forty eight revolutions uh, Twiss went and visited Metternich many times in his uh, schloss, in his castle, and they remained close until 1859, so for 11 years, uh, till 1859 when Metternich died. What comes across in the extraordinary number of letters, they wrote hundreds of letters to each other, and what comes across in those letters was that Twiss saw himself, along with Metternich, as protecting the order established at the Congress uh, of Vienna. So protecting that order that was meant to protect Europe from uh, the threats of nationalism in particular and the threats of liberalism. Uh, So that position, that quite conservative position Twist had in international law in the 1840s Uh, writing about the Oregon Territory was in fact greatly accentuated by this relationship he had with with, with Metternich over those 10 years. They produced a number of publications together, either then published anonymously or in Twiss's name. Uh, And in all of these publications and in the letters, they represented uh, the idea of the state Uh, the existing state system as effectively uh, sacred, of international law being very much what was referred in the 19th century to the uh, European law of nations, uh, and to um, the stability of that order. They believed not... Entirely uh, wrongly that the breakup of many of the great empires, for example, the breakup of the Austrian Empire, would lead to um, disintegration, nationalism, conflict, uh, and 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 uh, a lot of violence. And and to some degree, that that proved to be the case uh, over the following uh, hundred years. In fact, so twist that was Twiss's Uh, background, and and this is by the... uh, He still was very attached to these these ideas in 1859 when Metternich died, and by that point he was 50 years old. What is interesting, even seemed extraordinary to me, was that by uh, the uh, 1870s, Twist started publishing articles about the need to admit non-European nations to international society. And not just the the debates at that time, of course, were about China and Japan in particular, but he was arguing for the admission of sub-Saharan African peoples uh, into uh, international societies. Uh, And he he was really then at the vanguard of uh, a complete liberalization of international society uh, and he then it was at this time that he then began to argue of course that um, what he termed private associations such as chartered companies or Leopold's corporation international his International African Association which went by uh, many different names as Adam Hochschild has shown. Uh, Twis argued that these these uh, private associations as he called them could have a standing in uh, international society. Now, from a 20th and a 21st century perspective, that is not particularly shocking. In the 20th and 21st century, all kinds of international associations, such as the, the International Red Cross, can uh, has a standing in international society and international law, uh, just as, for example, through human rights law, individual persons have standing in international law. But that state of affairs in the 20th and 21st centuries came about because of this change at the end of the 19th century. And I would argue uh, that uh, Twiss uh, in particular was one of the central figures in making this change. Uh, There were many other factors, but the the case made for the Congo Free State was one of the earliest cases for doing this. There'd been, uh, if we go back to the 17th century, uh, writers on the law of nations, such as Hugo Grotius, had been happy to include thinking about non-state actors as 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 um, having a personality uh, in in international law and international society. But by the eighteenth century, uh, by the well, by the eighteenth century, it was quite clear that European states wanted to close off that possibility. They wanted to make uh, international Society, a club of a fixed number of states, Emma de Vittel, the uh, 18th century, probably the most eminent 18th century writer on international law is ty- typical of, um, of, of of that movement. Uh, and so while it is true that from the early 17th century and even before, uh, c- chartered companies such as the East India Company or the Hudson's Bay Company uh, or the Massachusetts Bay Company might have behaved as though they had a um, uh, standing of their own that was separate from states and should be recognised in international law, the fact is that all of them acted at any, any point in time They when, they, when for example, the uh, East India Company made treaties, it would always, even if it did it without the approval of the English state, it would subsequently... Uh, seek a kind of retrospective um, approval for the things that had done from the state. So it wasn't until the late 19th century that such corporations could begin to behave without any uh, approval from, from any state. And I think uh, twist is a central kind of figure in that shift. Uh, that's, that's the thing I really wanted to understand, that, the nature of that shift.
1: So let's dig into some of the factors, um, obviously, that kind of make him such a central figure in this shift. Um, And obviously, for our listeners, uh, we're not going to be able to go into every detail that's in the book, unfortunately. Um, There's a whole lot of stories and details and things, um, even just as you've mentioned, the letters with Metternich. So, for listeners who want all that detail, I do definitely point you to the book. Um, for that, but sadly we're probably not going to get into every nuance. Um, there's
0: a lot in there. Yeah. There's a lot in
1: there. <laughs> but we can get through some of the main things and I'd love to um, kind of put together a few of the pieces that you've mentioned so far, right this idea of a shift and also the fact that his career had so many pieces to it. Um, Because you actually argue very persuasively in the book that the different types of law and the different types of positions that Twist had um, really impact kind of how he's able to make these radical arguments, how he's able to... Uh, bring these kind of seemingly different pieces together Uh, and I was particularly interested to understand um, how he in his career essentially united what seem like really different bits of law ecclesiastical law international law and the admiralty courts which don't on the face of it sound like they're related Um, yet he did all of those things and that's not incidental to his kind of ability to think of law in new ways and think of personhood in new ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about this. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Well, this is one of the quirks um, of the reformation uh, really uh, to, to understand these, these connections between ecclesiastical law and and international law. Uh, When, um, so when England broke uh, from the church of Rome, in the 16th century, uh, one area in which they made no uh, break was in the, the, in the kind of law that the church uh, uses. So um, the Catholic Church uh, has, has its own, uh, and, and the Church of England, of course, um, they have their own legal systems, they have their own courts, um, consistory courts, they have various reasons for using those courts. I mean, in the 16th century, the church still had pretensions to exercising temporal power, so it also had reasons for having uh, a legal system and courts for, for for that. But these courts could try uh, all kinds of questions, questions related to heresy, uh, questions, I mean, when Twist was involved in, in such trials, there'd be questions about the right way in which to Interpret the Eucharist, which was extremely important uh, in the in the split within the Church of England with the Oxford Movement in the nineteenth century. Um, the re- so, when when the when the split with the Catholic Church came in the sixteenth century, the, the the law that the Catholic Church used at the time was civil law, uh, which is based on on Roman law, and. The And the Church of England, uh, while it moved away from the Catholic Church uh, to to some degree in terms of its theology, uh, it did not move away from the Catholic Church in terms of what kind of law it used. It was not going to come up with an entirely new legal system. They just simply maintained the existing civil law jurisdiction within the Church of England as it had existed in the Catholic Church. Now the significance of that is of course that England as a whole uh, uh, predominantly not exclusively but predominantly used the common law as we know uh, England was and is different from even Scotland in this respect, England was um, distinguished from the continent uh, from having a separate system of common, common law uh the um when now, at the same time in in about the sixteenth and seventeenth century modern states developed and those states uh as they entered into um a uh and as those states entered into a kind of society with each other as as separate individual persons thomas hobbes um famously described them as each each state as uh, effectively having its own personhood and this is a very common description states were understood in law as uh, often understood in law as corporations so having separate legal personality when states were understood as these autonomous uh, individuals in a society relating to each other many r- lawyers and philosophers and um uh, even theologians Felt the need to theorize what legal relations they might have need of between themselves, and obviously the the, the famous instance of this was Hugo, uh, the writings of Hugo Grotius, and this and um, uh, other writers such as Alberico Gentili in the fifteen nineties. Um, we can go back further until the fifteen thirties. People like um, Victoria, but about in in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. There's a body of work to try and theorize the idea that law exists between, existed between these new individuals called states. Now, the question is, where would that law come from? And where uh, they sought all these theorists sought the the uh, the law was again in Roman law. So international law, this kept, became this law of nations, that was known in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, was was termed international law by Jeremy Bentham in the nineteenth century. This international law did not exist by itself; it had to be borrowed. So it was borrowed largely from private uh, civil law. Uh, largely through making analogies. So analogies, for example, around the question of um, property uh, were made between uh, the Roman law of property regarding occupation. This was introduced into international. There are many, many such examples. This is the way in which the international law grew. So ecclesiastical law and, and international law both drew on civil law, but of course, in in England, this had a particular characteristic, because in in England, uh, these were the only two areas in which, virtually the only two areas, also in Chancery courts, but that that I, I can talk about that separately. But these were the main areas in which uh, the civil law was practiced. So those two um, understandings of the law were placed in the same. Uh, chambers within the Inns of court that is in the doctor's commons. That's what the doctor's commons was needed for. Ecclesiastical law to deal predominantly with marriage and international law to deal with relations between states. And it was in the same rooms of of a small group of lawyers that, that these questions were decided. So generally what happened was that during the day, the most of the business of the lawyers in the Doctors' Commons was concerned with with marriage law within ecclesiastical law. The greatest part of the daily practice was concerning marriage law questions of marriage. We twist, you know, wrote uh, often letters uh, to Metternich talking about how, at the end of the day, he'd finished doing his various things in marriage law, and at the end of the day, he would turned to to international law. So international law tended to be what they did. Uh, in their evenings, but they were practicing both. This is what they did all day, every day in the same rooms, and nothing else. It was to the exclusion of everything else. It was pretty much marriage law and international law in the minds of the same men in the Doctors' Commons. My argument <clears throat> to some degree is, of course, when these civil lawyers in the Doctors' Commons had to develop principles uh new principles in international law they they had to think through analogy and the main area of uh, civil law that they thought about most of the day was marriage law. So oddly we find Charles Dickens comments on this at um, a c- certain point um, um, in David Copperfield. Um, steerforth is trying to get david copperfield to go and get a job in the doctor's commons telling him it's a great place to to work and and david copperfield says that steerforth you know I, I i don't even understand what this doctor's commons is and and steerforth explains that this is a place where marriage law and international law are both uh an admiralty law which is the main branch of international law um this is where these two things were were, were practiced and David Copperfield responds, but stiff or surely marriage law and admiralty law, you know, these two things can't, you know, have nothing to do with each other. They could not be combined in the same chambers. Um, so Dickens, who was a journalist working in the Doctor's Commons, you know, they clearly thought this was rather uh, odd as well. Uh, What I think is interesting about this as as an historian is to think about the ways in which the development of international law, and I think there could be many ways, uh, the development of international law could be related to questions of marriage. Um, What I hope, and and particularly because these international lawyers had to think through making analogies with Private civil law, and the main private civil law, as I said, that they thought about was marriage law. I think this is what Twiss uh, did, and I think this is actually one of the concrete links between how he ended up thinking about the Congo Free State uh, through the lens of thinking about his marriage uh, to his own uh, wife.
1: So let's move to that. Um, how t- t- tell us about this marriage, right? What well, first off, you know who was his wife? Why did they get married? um, And how can we see the link between these two kinds of law through their marriage?
0: Yes. Uh, Well, Twister's wife was um, born into a uh, Belgian peasant family. Uh, Her name was Farald van Leinzele. Uh, She was born in Courtrai in Belgium. So I had to, one of the things I had to do with this book is to actually dig up her birth certificate uh, so she definitely existed, um, which was something i wasn 't sure about when I first started writing the book uh, because in the, the there's a trial in eighteen seventy two in which a another man who's in, in prominent in the book, as you know, uh, another man, Alexander chaffers, a, a London lawyer, accused her of being a prostitute and made a statutory declaration uh, to that effect in Bond bon Street police station that Farrell van Leer was a prostitute uh, which he you know in doing this of course he, and he said I know she was because she um, I was one of her clients so he obviously um, destroyed his own reputation in doing this uh, it was that important for him to to, to make that to make that claim um, I wasn't prepared to believe his accusation as the basis for saying that she she claimed to have been the daughter of Dutch uh, a Dutch um, nobleman um, raised in Poland uh, I think the her mother eventually was claimed to be a, a, a Polish Abbess uh, there was a whole story conducted around you know, who she really was she had to be of aristocratic uh, background because when she married twist she was introduced introduced um, to Queen Victoria twice uh, but um, uh, it, you know, i I couldn't believe I, I wasn't sure of that the accusation against her was was true, and I felt that the only way of establishing that it really was true was to find her birth certificate. And I knew um, where she was said to have been born uh, by by the accuser, uh, who knew Chaffers, who clearly knew her very well, as we know from the trial. And uh, and I I set about digging around uh, in the um, in the births um, and deaths uh, registry office in in and 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 found her her birth certificate. She was born in eighteen thirty four. Her parents were illiterate uh, peasants, and like many young women during the Industrial Revolution, she left rural poverty to go and live. In a large city, uh, 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 working as a prostitute, she um, she and I should say um, I've, I've I've had the, in writing the book I used some. I was concerned about the description of her as a prostitute and whether or not to use that term. Uh, there, I had colleagues who work on the history of prostitution who pointed me to debates about whether to use the term prostitute or sex worker, which is very commonly used now uh, in discussions of prostitution. Uh, and certainly if we're talking about the 21st century or even the 20th century, we'd be more inclined to say sex worker. The argument of The colleagues uh, and and the scholarship I have read on this was that where there is a question about agency, sex workers is is a term that has come about because of um, wanting to uh, represent women in the sex trade uh, as having some agency. Uh, A colleague who worked on the Philippines, on, on the sex trade in the Philippines, argued that sex worker... Um, was attributing far too much agency to women who didn't have very much and that for this reason it was better to use the term prostitute. I don't think it's a, a actually a, um, a good solution, but it, but it seemed to be because I think actually these women I'm concerned with did, and one of the things I try to show in the book is ways in which they did exercise agency. On the other hand, one of the other women I talk about in this book, uh, Agnes Willoughby, Given that she was first prostituted by her mother at the age of thirteen in a workhouse, uh, clearly uh, there did not seem to be much agency for her from a, 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 for, a, for a large part of her own story. So I eventually sided with using that term. Yeah, um,
1: I'm interested. I'm glad you brought up the um, idea of agency because I think that's. One of the questions, sort of reading it, that I immediately had, which was the traditional story, of course, in this time period, with someone um, like Twist, a you know well-off gentleman, um, would not be that he then marries the prostitute, right, um, and especially not tries to pass her off in a way that and can be you know introduced to the queen, so. I was wondering if you could maybe, um, and so I was very pleased to essentially turn the page as I had this question, and you addressed this quite directly, (laughs) um, which is very helpful. So why exactly was that the path chosen? And perhaps more importantly, how? How was it possible to do this?
0: Yes, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, It's interesting introducing the book. You mentioned it as a love story um yeah. i mean clearly I think he he loved her, but the as one of the things that comments are make in the book is m- many men loved their mistresses and went home to their wives. They did not need to you know prostitution the the, the victorian gentleman you know prostitution was extraordinarily common in Victorian uh, England and particularly in London and gentlemen, uh, it was very common for men to have uh, as twi- twist initially with Leinzele, um when he met her he kept her, to use the term uh, used in the trial uh, for £10 a week and why he didn't continue to do that is difficult to understand because many gentlemen uh, and their mistresses were in love without ever getting married. Why they actually felt that they needed to take the extra step and go and get married. I cannot answer, um, but and it has driven me crazy for ten years. But I, I mean, I think and cannot prove that. So I I don't think it can be for the reason of love. I think it was a certain kind of. Uh, a create, I mean, a kind of creative impulse, uh, uh, a desire to... I think this is a time in which there is a very strong liberal notion of being able to invent personality. And this is why I talk about invent persons. I also talk at some length in the book about the, the myth of um, Pygmalion and Galatea, uh, the the you know the, in in Ovid's Pygmalion and Galatea the 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 sculptor who crafts a statue and brings the statue to life. I think there's a certain kind of that's that liberals love that story because it's about creativity, the creation of individuals uh, and individual self improvement. Victorians are obviously obsessed with self improvement, and I think there's a certain creative arrogance about her um, about the marriage and her reinvention as uh not as a belgian peasant who was a prostitute uh but as a um as a dutch um aristocrat Uh, and um it it seems to me the only um uh explanation i should say you know in in terms of how then twists matter well in in the usual way in which um, gentlemen and prostitutes met, but there was a very specific context which is that French and Belgian prostitutes uh, pretty much had to work at the bottom of Regent Street. They worked all over London, but then and there are various ways forms that prostitution took many forms but but there was a constant women of different nationality worked in different parts of the city. French and Belgian prostitute, as the contemporary reports show, were concentrated at the bottom of Regent Street. And at the bottom of Regent Street was also uh, the Athenaeum Club, uh, w- of which Twist was a member. So it seems fairly likely that Twist stepped out of the club one night and 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 walked straight into her. That would have been how they met. Why they then subsequently went and and got married, as I say, is a bit of a mystery. But I think there it reflects this. I think it reflects this liberal. Uh, story of the nineteenth century, the growth of liberal sentiment, and and that seems it seems to be that liberal sentiment and that notion of changing, the possibility of changing persons, really overtakes his life from the eighteen fifties uh, onwards. As it does, as it changes the whole of Victorian society from about that point in time. So that very conservative um uh, desire to you know m- maintain order from the eighteen you know from the Congress of Vienna through to the 1848 revolutions there's the initial reaction against the 1848 revolutions to to try and stop revolution but it's actually followed by a lot of reform obviously uh and uh, and that reform uh is is not not only in the um uh, various acts of emancipation for men and women, including the women's, married women's property acts, but also emancipation of states uh, in terms of admitting non-European states to international society. And I think Twiss becomes uh, part of this uh, through his own marriage. I, I actually think that um, her transformation is a part of that broader story and that's what they were really trying to achieve in, in getting married.
1: Well, and as you mentioned earlier, um, this works for a time. She is introduced to the Queen. um, Uh. But this reputation ruining accusation and court case um, eventually ends with him losing all his positions, um, fleeing the country, and um, perhaps unsurprisingly, kind of when he ends up in a position to be able to work for King Leopold of Belgium, um, you know, it's hard for me at least to imagine that he would be interested in that if he had had all of his old positions and hadn't been forced to leave everything behind. Um, but of course he does end up working for um, King Leopold on the issue of the Congo free state. So now that we sort of understand a bit about his career, about sort of the creative impulses that he might be showing in certain areas of his life, um, how his legal knowledge is very much entwining international and marriage law. And, um, Kind of, how does this all come together uh, with the arguments on the Congo Free State? What were the claims he was making, and kind of why? How radical were they?
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Yes, I think he 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 comes to yeah, as you say he's come he came to work for Leopold because the scandal of his wife having been revealed as a prostitute uh, led to him having no. No employment, and his letters show great desperation in trying to find some means uh, with which to live. He'd, he needed money. He'd been a very wealthy man on a on a salary of um, several thousands of pounds a year, which was a lot of money in, in, at this time. And he went from that to having very little. So he needed to work for Leopold for that reason. The question that interest and, and uh, that interested me is how he could make. A case for Leopold uh, about transformation—the transformation of a um, of a company into into a state—and as I say, I think his ideas about the transformations of personhood probably first his his change of heart about transformations of personhood, is something that he would really resisted up until the eighteen fifties. I think his change of heart didn't come in the 1870s working for Leopold. They came through his marriage, and the the recognition of these creative possibilities came from that. In terms of what um, positions exactly he changed his mind about, I think there are really four. Uh, The first thing was that corporations and and not any non-state entities can have a position in international society and in international law. So so up until this point the the the, um, the legal orthodoxy was that there that there's absolutely no way that a non-state entity had a voice in international society. The the idea that they could when twist started to make these these arguments other international lawyers at the time partly from behind anonymous pamphlets uh condemn this idea as a legal heresy the second idea so that's the first idea a second idea that he had to change these are four ideas that you need to be able to turn a company into a state uh, or to turn this particular company into a state the second idea would be uh, was that sub-saharan people can have sovereignty as i mentioned At this point, by the 1870s, there were debates in the Institut de droit international, so the International Association of International Lawyers, uh, were having a conversation about whether Japan and China and the Ottomans uh, should be admitted to uh, the Society of Nations. And the Ottomans effectively already had been. There'd been treaties made for many hundreds of years with them. But um, nevertheless, this was still debated as late as the 1870s. Uh, there was that debate, but nobody was prepared to concede in the uh, community of international lawyers or generally in the international community that sub Saharan peoples could be sovereign. Uh, so that is a case that, that Twist had to, to make that these people possess sovereignty. The third point was that a company can receive um a cession of sovereignty that a, that a sovereign people can give their sovereignty to a company. What we begin to see here then is a, is is a shift from what in the wake of the Congress of Vienna had been argued that the idea that nation states or states are these sacred entities uh a position which Twist had held, the idea that sovereignty can be ceded to a company shows as a, a by this time the international order was being liberalized so radically that uh, that sovereign uh, sovereignty was effectively being commodified. It was becoming a commodity. So Twist also made the argument. Of course, nobody agreed with this idea, but Twist started to make this argument that sovereignty could be ceded to a company. All of these publications in. in in which he made these claims, he never mentioned the fact that he was in personal contact with Leopold and was making the case for Leopold. The fourth um, claim that he made uh, was that a company can be turned into a state. So you need each one of those four things in order to get the International African Association, which was Leopold's um, supposedly philanthropic organisation for um, helping the people of Africa, for turning this international organisation into the Congo Free State. You needed each one of those four things. And made each one of those four arguments, first in publications, uh, and then subsequently... Uh, he attended when when, Bis, uh, when Bismarck called the uh, conference of nations in 1884 85 in Berlin. Uh, Twist attended. The British government sent him, not knowing that he was actually working for Leopold. He attended as an unofficial uh, uh, delegate, uh, and he made the this case as well in. The um, Berlin Conference um, again, without declaring to anyone that he was working for Leopold. Although he eventually, of course, uh, produced a um, constitution for the Congo Free State, he pulled out and said, "Well, I have a constitution as well for this new state." Um, but yes, as I say, these these are the four these those are the four steps which which were necessary in order to create this to create this new state. They were very strongly resisted. All four of these steps were very strongly resisted by lawyers at the time. And if you, I mean, reading the um, correspondence within the British Foreign Office, uh, the people working in the Foreign Office in in London regarded uh, all of these claims as just laughable and absurd.
1: And yet they were convinced at some point
0: yes how did that go (laughs) yes well that's funny um so so if all of this was so crazy and absurd as everybody all legal opinion at the time seemed to think uh how could the congo free state come into existence well this is yeah Uh, this is how intellectual history often seems to work um uh, and how intellectual life often seems to work. So at, when when the conference came, when the Berlin conference came, but Bismarck, um, Bismarck was in contact with the French in the lead-up to the conference because they were very worried, the French and the Germans, uh, about what Britain was up to in Africa, uh, and for a number of reasons. But they were particularly concerned that Britain which, of course, was the most powerful uh, um, empire in the world at this time, uh, that Britain was about to carve out yet another large part of of, um, the globe for itself within Africa. Bismarck was determined to stop this. The French were obviously very nervous about it too. And between them, the French and and Bismarck uh, agreed that they'd have this conference to establish some rules for what was called the carve-up. Of Africa, at the conference, uh, the 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 lines began to shift. Bismarck was afraid that the French were actually trying to um, uh, trying to um, do the same thing. The French explorer Brazza had been travelling around the Congo, making many treaties in the same way that Henry Stanley had been doing uh, for Leopold so so the Germans started to worry about what the French were going to do in africa um the the Portuguese made actually um the most long standing claim to the Congo the Portuguese were worried about what everybody was going to do um the British were worried about what the Germans were doing uh they were all concerned that the that the, the uh, one of the other great powers was going to uh carve out um a large part of Africa for themselves, and this would, you know, lead to them uh, losing uh, power in relation to each other. Uh, the consequence of this was that the, the Leopold and the Belgium, as a as a neutral state, it should be said. Belgium had never wanted anything to do with Leopold's plans because <clears throat> the Belgian government said, if we get involved in establishing um, a colony in Africa, this will endanger uh, our neutrality. One of the conditions for the creation of the Belgian state in the 1830s had been its neutrality. So the um, the Belgians were not, were not uh, part of these discussions and Leopold uh, was not present because at the moment, in recognition of the fact that only states could attend a, a conference of, of uh, international society, Leopold's International African Association had no standing in international society. So Leopold had no place at the conference. Fortunately for him, Twist was there. Twiss and and some others as well at the conference worked on getting uh, not only uh, Bismarck, but the British and the French to to accept that one of the solutions to any of the great powers getting hold of a large part of Africa and becoming a threat to the others would be uh, if it was given to this private association or this, this company um, if the Congo could be granted to this company uh, because it was seen as so weak uh, that, that it would not pose a problem for anybody. That is really what led to the break, you know, that, that was the breakthrough. What they then needed, however, was some kind of Band-Aid. I mean, some kind of, I mean, the, the, it's, it was so um, illegitimate, this idea in international law at the time, that it was necessary to have a kind of ideological whitewash for the creation of this what, what contemporaries quite rightly described as this as a kind of monstrosity, and, and a state that it should be said subsequently behaved, a, a, you know, like a monstrosity. Uh, so the 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 ideological whitewash what was all had already been carefully laid out. Uh, by twists in the preceding several years since 18 from about 1877 so for the preceding six seven years and he'd laid out those four points that I mentioned which made it possible for everybody to kind of take you know to swallow uh, and say okay we'll accept that this international association can now become a can now become a state. Uh, and and the the final step needed uh, for it to be one was recognition uh, from through treaties from all the great powers and Twist then played an extremely important role in persuading the British Foreign Office, which was as the most powerful player there, uh, and, w- and also one of the last powers to come around to to provide recognition. Twist worked on the Foreign Office. Uh, uh, to to give that recognition and and by the end of the conference, the Congo Free State was born.
1: Mm, quite a transformation, quite a shift. There, um, fascinating to sort of see, particularly you know what you were talking about at the beginning of his career and his life, where he was, and seeing this and kind of bringing everyone along with him in a
0: way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, So before we sort of wrap up, I'd love to um, kind of tie up the other aspect of the story, which is, of course, um, his personal relationship, Um, because it's not just him going off to this conference and persuading everyone. Um, There's kind of an odd bit of drama personally as well. Uh, How is it that it ends up that Twist literally hands his wife over to King Leopold,
0: mm-hmm. mm. that is that I was quite shocked when I discovered that. So I was I was interested. What one of the you know this this writing this book depended on a large number of archives. Obviously, there's the in the um, in Prague in the Czech National Archives, there's the whole correspondence between Metternich and Twiss, and the um, Lambeth Palace. There's a, a great correspondence between um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Twiss. Uh, In the the British Foreign Office papers, there was a lot of correspondence in Norfolk Records Office, correspondence relating to Agnes Willoughby, one of his first mistresses. But in um, the Royal Palace in Brussels, one of the most valuable uh, sets of of correspondence and papers was that between Twiss and Leopold. And um, not easy to get into, to get hold of, but... um, uh, that uh, uh, that correspondence included a um, a letter which I was I was quite shocked to discover from um, 1889, w- in which Twiss wrote to Leopold to say I cannot look after my wife any longer. Um, she has become involved in a new scandal he doesn't say what it's not at all clear what Um, there's this flurry of correspondence between the british consul um leopold's ministers uh and various others about what what this is all about it's not clear exactly what the scandal was. But Twist says, I just can't deal with this uh, anymore. By this time, he was 80 years old. She was significantly younger, younger than him. Uh, and, um, and he says to Leopold, I have to hand her over to you. I mean, of course, one of the things that that reflected, uh, he never obviously in his life ever admitted, and she never admitted uh, that she had been a Belgian prostitute. But of course, one of the things that probably reflected was that she was a Belgian national uh, so that he could, uh, well, I mean, I think legally the basis of this was probably extremely tenuous, but there's at least an idea behind that, that he could hand her over to Leopold. What then happened to her? There's nothing nothing further in the, Leopold eventually kind of accepts this. It seems to be partly in, in payment of his debt to Twist, and and. I mean, I'd been looking at ways all through this story in which, you know, what light the Mar- Twister's marriage reflected on his arguments to create the Congo Free State. And when I came across this these letters, I suddenly, you know, um, was confronted by the fact that the two, two stories of his marriage and of his work for Leopold uh, come together um, at this point. Um, what happened to her afterwards was uh, not in the in that correspondence then going back to the lambeth palace correspondence i was just very lucky i was i came across um, a letter written in the 1890s uh, regarding uh, uh, t- somebody was uh, in in um, somebody in the archbishops um, office wanting to get an opinion on a matter of ecclesiastical law said there'd been a ruling on this 30 years earlier the only person alive who probably know was this man who disappeared into to hide in in um somewhere in in um Surrey called Travis Twist uh and that um and th- that it would be um, a good idea to consult him about this question on the Bottom of that letter was scrawled. Uh, oh, and by the way, I heard um, that his wife was placed um, in a Belgium a Belgian um, asylum. So it would seem what happened is Twist gave his wife to Leopold, and it is hardly surprising anybody who knows the reputation of Leopold II. Uh, Leopold wasted no time in putting her immediately into an asylum, which of course is a fate for many. Troublesome women and men uh, in the nineteenth century, uh, and she died. Uh, then there was a another court case. Uh, where the, the, the Alexander Chaffers, the man who brought all these these um, court cases, uh, kept on pursuing um, Twiss and his wife throughout his life uh, and and beyond uh, their lives. So. Very late in the 1890s, Chaffers was in court making a claim against Twist and his wife, who were both dead, and the judge said, oh, for God's sake, can't you just let this lie that both of them are now dead? Uh, Can you just let it be? And that's the first, the only reference. I mean, we know Twist died in 1897, but that was the first reference I found uh, to her actual death. So what happened to her was that she was put in an asylum and and she died there. Probably not very long afterwards.
1: An interesting ending to a very yes, interesting... a rather grim
0: ending. I, I I suppose I mean I should say one of the points I wanted to make in the book was about the you know the the, the possibilities that liberalism. Presented in the nineteenth century, the the possibilities of reinvention that seems to be a lot of the these stories are, are stories uh, of reinvention. The story of Twist and his wife is a story of reinvention, as is the story of the Congo. And I suppose one of the things that interested me about her fate was about the the limits of reinvention. That um, that that these stories, uh, these liberal stories, when taken to extremes, often uh, had sticky endings.
1: Mm which is absolutely fascinating um and to bring these two sort of strands together the personal the legal etc um so thank you for taking us through those twists and turns um in sort of an abridged version obviously as i said before uh, there's so much detail in the book for readers want to get into this even more um i would definitely recommend that But really, only as my last question, I suppose. Uh, The book obviously has been out for a little bit now. um, So hopefully, you were able to get some amount of rest and relaxation um, after the project. But is there anything you're working on now or next you could give us a sort of sneak preview of? (laughs) Uh,
0: Yes, I. Well, as a result, every book seems to um, be sparked off the previous one. It's the case with this book and this book. Well, I was working on Twist. One of the things the the archivist in the Athenaeum um, said to me, um, "Do you know we we have you know all these Victorian uh, intellectuals, gentle- gentlemen, dined in here in the nineteenth century, um, and uh, you know people like Dickens and um, Darwin and 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 so on. I mean, it's hard to think of any major Victorian intellectual who." Wasn't a member of the the Athenaeum, and and the, one of the rules of the club committee was that they, sh- that if they had any comments to make about the club at all, they should put their comments on the right on the back of their dinner bills. Uh, and she said we we kept the the, the committee had to because it was part in the constitution of the club had to keep all these dinner bills and they're all bound in volumes and nobody's ever looked at them. I said, oh, could you show me? And so the, <laughs> she has all these volumes and volumes and volumes, thousands and thousands and thousands of dinner bills with um, the names of the people who are eating on the front, what they ate and drank, and, um, and then their thoughts about either their dinner or the service or the state of the economy or the 1848 revolutions or... Um, you know, New Zealand lamb, in the case of Henry Sumner, Maine. Uh, I mean, just the most random collection of thoughts by really great uh, intellectuals. And I, w- I thought there's a potential here to write an intellectual history that is that would combine with... Um, a history of food and intoxication, because they certainly drank an extraordinary amount. If you look at the facing side of the bills, uh, and a, f- a colleague at Sheffield, Phil Whittington, who works on intoxication and and uh, and and on the history of food, uh, uh, became interested in this when I told him about it. So we're developing a joint project to to. Um, to dig into these dinner bills and tell the story of the dinner bills who was who was eating with who what they ate and what they thought about the world uh at that time so that's that's one of my projects i've got another one on the political thought of chartered companies and corporations but that's uh that's a longer term project
1: okay well that sounds fascinating um, and yet another example of, as you said, kind of one book leading to another, but also the wonderful things one can find if you ask archivists or librarians questions.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 at the beginning of the, this, the twist book, I say, you know, one of my greatest debts is to the archivists. They're just um, extraordinary, the, the help that they gave in, in making the project possible.
1: Yeah. No, that's absolutely wonderful. Well, hopefully, if that does become a book, you can come back and tell us all about it. Um, but in the meantime, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled King Leopold's Ghostwriter um, from Princeton University Press in 2021. Um, Dr. Andrew Fitzmorris, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you. It was great fun.